Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. In this week's episode of Polygamer, our game is not about cancer, it's about Joel, <laughs> and it's about our family, and kind of all the, all the ups and downs and the roller coaster of going through this experience. That was Ryan Green, co creator of That Dragon Cancer, currently on Kickstarter. You'll be hearing from him and co-creator Josh Larson later on in this episode. But first, welcome to Polygamer. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. It's been a tough week for us social justice warriors, especially for those women who continue to be targeted by Gamergate. Randy Harper, found on Twitter as FreeBSDGirl, and who created a Twitter block list that allows you to subscribe to automatically block all Gamergaters, has recently been threatened by somebody posting photos of himself outside her workplace and promising to go there with a knife. The person making these tweets has been posting them with his real name, which gives her an unprecedented opportunity to address this matter legally, as opposed to the anonymous threats that are often issued online, in which the first question is, who is this person? Can they actually enact this crime? I wish her first and foremost safety and security in these trying times, and secondly, success in addressing the matter. Also, Brianna Wu, creator of Revolution 60 from Giant Space Cat Studios, was recently the subject of a Patreon asking people to donate money to stop the person behind the Patreon from detailing personal information about her. This is known as extortion. I did not get to see the Patreon before it was taken down, which happened very quickly, so I don't have the details of the matter or whether or not it was intended as a joke, but these kinds of jokes aren't all that funny, and I'm glad to see it's been taken care of swiftly. Brianna recently had an excellent Tumblr post detailing her day and how from 9 to 5, all the matters that she deals with generated by Gamergate leave her almost no time to do her actual job to pursue her career in game development. Giant Space Cat has additional games coming out and all these distractions threaten their quality and timeliness. This is a rather obvious example of what they mean by gaming being a toxic environment for women. Why would anyone want to follow in Brianna's steps when they won't even get to do what it is they're passionate about, which is make games, and the rest of us won't get to play the games? Truly, there are no winners in a situation like this. However, there is plenty that we can do. Video game critic and YouTube personality Alana Pierce recently had the creative and effective approach of taking the attacks she is receiving and forwarding them to the attacker's mother. Now, I don't know necessarily how she is finding out the person's identity, I do not approve of doxing, whether it's pro-Gamergate, anti-Gamergate, whatever side of the equation you're on, if there are even sides, I don't think people should be doxed. What I do like about her approach, though, is that it indicates that the people that are attacking her are preteens and teenagers. These are not well-adjusted adults. These are little kids who are getting their jollies from online attacks and not experiencing any real-world consequences until their parents find out. So if the best way to get rid of gamer gators is to get them grounded with their internet access taken away, that I am for. I think there was a joke on this subject in the recent Riftracks Live event. Riftracks, of course, is the comedy troupe founded by the former host of the TV show Mystery Science Theater 3000. On Thursday, December 4th, they mocked the film Santa Claus, a Mexican film that was bought by an American film producer and dubbed over in the style of What's Up Tiger Lily, except without trying to be funny. At one point, Santa Claus says, Let's go check in on what those three naughty boys are doing. And one of the riffers says, They're doxing game developers. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. These doxers are probably kids. Pierce's approach to this situation was brought to my attention by Val Potter, an editor at ComputerWorld.com, who recently published my feature on anti-doxing which I indicated would be forthcoming in a previous episode of Polygamer. It is now available and details about a dozen different services, including Intellius, Pipple, and Spokio, from which you can find your personal information, including your home address, your phone number, and relatives' names, and your age, and have that information removed. The story was reblogged by Lifehacker, as well as Cory Doctorow at Boing Boing, and has gotten great attention online. While I in no way, shape, or form wish to engage in victim-blaming, as some doxers would suggest by saying that if you don't want your information being used against you, then you shouldn't have put it out there. I do think a bit of preventive measure can help alleviate these situations. One of my Twitter followers said that Pipple found the name of her dog who died 10 years ago. That's not information you want being out there, and it's not information you put out there. You'd never ask for this information to be included in these databases. So take a moment, or actually an hour or two, 
and go through these databases, find your information, and get it the heck out of there. More bad news, even as I am currently recording this show, the Able Gamers website is experiencing a DDoS attack. Able Gamers is a nonprofit that helps improve accessibility to games for those with mental or physical disabilities. I'd hoped to have them on this show by now, but our schedules have not aligned. However, I do hope to rectify that in 2015. I don't have the details about this attack right now, but it seems that they turned down a donation due to the source of the funds. I don't know what those funds were at this time, but apparently that refusal was met with scorn by somebody who decided to attack a charity for people with disabilities. Good job, guys. In happier news, I was recently one of seven Lightning Talk speakers at the monthly meeting of the Women in Games Boston group. That group can be found at wigboston.wordpress.com. I gave a talk about this very podcast, Polygamer, and how it was founded and what I hope to achieve with it. And while I appreciated the opportunity to plug that work, the real benefit for me that evening was from meeting the many excellent and awesome people who are in the audience and also giving talks. People who have been on this show, like Khadija Marenkov and other friends like Emma Clarkson. One of the speakers, Anthony Russo, mentioned that he went to WPI, and I figured, well, I'll work that into my talk as well, because I went to WPI, might as well make that connection with my audience. I didn't realize that there was an entire gaggle of students from WPI attending that very evening. They belong to the WPI Game Development Club, or GDC, which I believe was in place when I was a student there more than a decade ago. However, there is also now an interactive media and game design major, which was not there during my tenure, and it seems that there is even now an equality and diversity in games group at WPI. I'm super excited to meet the organizers of this event and learn more about them and perhaps attend some of the meetings. Okay, enough updates. Let's get to this week's interview with Mr. Ryan Green and Josh Larson, co-creators of That Dragon Cancer, an empathy game or serious game about the creator Ryan Green's son, Joel. Joel was diagnosed four years ago with brain cancer, and two years ago that cancer was determined to be terminal. Around that time, Ryan and his family decided to create a video game that captured these difficult experiences, from diagnosis to caretaking. The game has been in development for two years, during which time Joel sadly passed away this past March. However, progress on the game continues and is currently on Kickstarter. At the time that this episode goes live on Wednesday, December 10th, 2014, the Kickstarter still has two days to go. However, it has met its fundraising goal of $85,000 and will be releasing in 2015 for Windows and Mac via Steam and for the Ouya Android game console. The developers gave me private access to an early demo of the game that features two of the 12 levels. This is certainly not the kind of game that you grind or speedrun. This is a very thoughtful art house game where you play from a first-person perspective. Some levels have you in a park watching Joel play on a playground. Others have you in a doctor's office receiving some bad news. You're almost always in a first-person perspective, and the environment is very abstract and very fluid, often capturing not just the physical reality of the moment, but also the challenging emotional turmoil that one experiences in response to such difficult situations. And it is a difficult game. This is not a game that anybody enjoys playing. I've read about people who play this at noisy environments like E3 or PAX and who are made extremely uncomfortable by the game. I played it in the privacy of my own home, and it was still really challenging. That doesn't sound like a game that's fun. That doesn't sound like a game that you want to play. But in much the same way, Saving Private Ryan is not just a good or bad movie. It's an important movie. This is something that I discussed last week in my other podcast, IndieCider, about the game This War of Mine, a recent indie game that shows what it's like to be a civilian in a war-torn part of the world. That is not a game that you want to play, it's a game you have to play. It's a very good game that shows the reality of a situation, and in this interview with Joel's father, Ryan, and his co-creator of the game, Josh Larson, they talk about why they made the game and who the game is for. So just as in my interview with Russ Pitts and Susan Arndt, there will be two voices you'll be hearing besides my own. The first one is that of Ryan Green. Most Polygamer interviews I edit to make sure that both the guest and the interviewer sound as smart and as eloquent as possible without changing the content or meaning of the discussion. In this episode, I did even less editing, because this is a very difficult subject with a lot of long pauses and a lot of thoughtful responses, and I didn't want you thinking that this is a topic that we discuss easily or glibly. This is very possibly the most challenging interview I've ever conducted. And I really appreciate Ryan and Josh giving their time during a Kickstarter, which can be very demanding on one schedule, to come on this show. 
If you would like to find links to the Kickstarter or any other games or resources mentioned in this episode, those can all be found at polygamer.net, where you can also send feedback or leave a comment. Thank you, as always, for listening. Joining me for today's episode of Polygamer is Mr. Ryan Green and Mr. Josh Larson, co-creators of That Dragon Cancer. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you. Let me start by offering my condolences on your loss. When I first heard about That Dragon Cancer from Jen Frank's article a few years ago, it seemed like such a, a hopeful game, a reaffirming game, even defiant. <laughs> and it seemed so surprising when the news came this past March that Joel had passed because games are something you're supposed to win. And this just didn't seem expected at all. And his life has touched many more people through your work. So thank you for that. Thank you. We all know a little bit about Joel from the story of the game and from having tried some of the demos. Can you tell us a little bit about him himself as he exists outside the game? You know, I mean, what was he like? Do you have any particular favorite memories? Um, Joel... Joel was gentle. I think that's one of the things that sticks out most to me is that um, I've said I've said before that Joel... Uh, spent more time on my lap than all my other children combined. And um, my favorite thing with him was just to, just to hold him and to just sit with him. And um, he just kind of melted into me. And um, I just loved that. And um, it, Joel loved to laugh and he loved to dance. He loved music and horses and dogs and, um, and bubbles and <laughs> just the simple things, simple interactions. Um, Joel was rather delayed, um, developmentally and, uh, because of that, uh, he, he never really formed uh, a large vocabulary and, um, and, and so, you know, my interactions with him were more of a one or two year old than a five year old. Um, but that didn't, uh, didn't lessen my love for him. You know, um, I think if anything, uh, his, his limitations really caused me to love him more and, and, and deeper. And I had just a great affection for Joel. Um, so yeah. He sounds like a very atypical toddler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was very special. Now, just like Joel, I have three brothers and no sisters, and I know that sibling rivalry can be strong. Do your other sons ever complain that you're not making games about them? No, not at all. And um, I think, Josh, how do you see our children treat each other? <laughs> yeah, I I am pretty amazed by um, their interactions with each other. I, I've witnessed a lot of families interact, you know, just like anybody else. And they are very affectionate toward each other and loving toward each other. And... You know, every once in a while, they're like, oh, I want to play this game or this game or, you know, do this thing. But they definitely don't um, fight like a lot of other toddlers I've seen. And they're just very loving toward each other. And I like to think that part of the reason is because um, they've all had to help um, with, you know, just different, just with family tasks. And then also um, understanding that Joel doesn't have all of the same abilities as other toddlers and just being able to understand and accept that, um, that they can still love him anyway. And that causes them to love each other more, I think. Yeah. I think they just, they look out for each other, which I think is, that's special. Um, yeah. So I, there's been no jealousy. And in fact, you know, um, Caleb, our oldest, he's nine and, wanting to get into game design and game development and just, you know, lamenting the fact that he doesn't know Unity better because he would love to be able to contribute more to the project. Um, so, yeah, uh, Joel's sickness was most of their known life. Um, he got sick when I think they were, gosh, uh, three and five, three, uh, two and four. So um, that's been their known existence and interaction with their brother. Joel's always been sick. So, um, so yeah. That diagnosis came so early and you 
started working on the game a few years ago, and you had also written a song, and I believe I read that you filmed a short film and wrote a book called He's Not Dead Yet. Mm. What are you hoping to accomplish with that dragon cancer that is unique to that medium? I think that answer didn't come till later in the project um, after Joel passed this March. Um, and that was just that video games give us the closest approximation of, of, how, of how, to, how it was to be with Joel. I can tell you about Joel. Uh, I can show you Joel, but, um, but my hope is that we can show you what it was like to be with Joel. And, um, I, I just, I find that unique to video games. Yeah. I think, um, you know, like if you think about all these different media and, you know, what's kind of like the natural thing to do, you know, with like a film, the easiest thing to do is grab a camera and sit down with people and just have a conversation, right? So it makes sense that in a short film, you know, you would show the family and how they interacted um, or, you know, in a documentary or whatever. And then in a book, you know, you would focus on the writing and illustration. And in a video game, obviously, that uh, is related to interactions and... Um, you know, rich media, audio, video, how those come together and just creating like an atmosphere uh, due to the immersion of video games. I think all of that kind of um, can be utilized to create a space to be with Joel and also to um, kind of explore the emotions and the, um, all of the themes that go with um what it means to be on that journey. Yeah, I think the word for me is presence. I think video games give you a presence, um, and I think that's special. Now, there are some people who might overlook the experience and get caught up in the semantics of what makes that dragon cancer a game. And I know, mm. Ryan, you've written about that on the website Game Church. Mm. You know, some people would say a game has to have rules or it has to be something that you can win. Um, by you know, What definition of a game are you using? personally I'm using the definition that life is uh, qualifies as a game that you spend most of your life trying to live and get life and um, and you do that through working within the rules and the systems of this world you know so I see video games as our close to our closest like artistic analog to life Um, and I think that that's unique Um, I think even something you know, like the demo that Jen Frank wrote about um, was about um, was about Joel's getting dehydrated and 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 was very sick and was vomiting juice and couldn't be consoled. And even in that space, there are rules and mechanics um, that we all do to try to comfort our children. And um, and so my question is, just that, like in real life, what happens when those mechanics aren't enough? What happens when those um, those laws don't <laughs> give you the life that you were hoping for. Um, and I say life as in kind of like a, a in a general sense, uh, not a specific sense. So, um, so yeah, I think that uh, video games offer us that kind of unique ability to mirror life. Um, and so I don't really have much of a use for the definition of video game because... Um, I just, I think that we can find pieces of that in all aspects of our life. And this is just a way to express, um, express that. So, uh, I would say we'd focus more on experience, but you know, this is, um, and there are little games along the way, just like there are little games that you play in life and, and certainly interacting with Joel, um, often was through play and through games, um, and so that's how you interact with Joel in the game. Josh, anything to add to that? You're, you have quite a, the experience as a software developer, I understand. Um, I've gotten super design nerdy on my blog before. Um, <laughs> and I guess I like Ryan's answer. So I'll just um, leave it at that because I'm afraid I would get super nerdy if I tried to really answer it. <laughs> oh, yes. Our audience hates nerds. That would be fine. <laughs> 
So there have been a lot of attempts over the years to address disease through video games. Going back 21 years ago, there was Captain Novalin for the Super Nintendo, which was about diabetes. And more recently, there was, of course, Zoe Quinn's game Depression Quest, which just came out last year. Was there any particular game that you looked at as a model to say, this is the kind of game we want to make, or this is a way in which we want our game to be different? I would say that um, in my, from my perspective, it seems like the when people hear, oh, this is how we can use video games to help people, it's usually from the perspective of, this is how we get people to comply better with the things that they want, we want them to do. And so a lot of times, um, well, maybe not a lot of times, but in the, in the cases that I've seen, like for instance with cancer games, um, there are games that try to increase compliance with youth and teenagers um, through kind of empowering them. And I think that's great. And I think if it allows them to, you know, because one of the hardest things with teenagers is getting, I've heard, is getting compliance um, with uh, some of the protocols because they're so hard um, and um, and they cause so much pain. Um, And so if if it offers them an escape, if it offers them empowerment, if the goal is um, is to increase clinical compliance, you know, those are all noble things, but they're not really what I'm interested in as a designer. Um, what I'm interested in is is uh, the story of disease and how it affects a person in all aspects of their being, and um, and I think you know video games are a unique way to do that. Um, so, uh, so really there wasn't an inspiration on what to do. I think as we've gone along on this project, I've, I've tried to intentionally play other games that deal with empathetic subjects or, um, like, uh, you know, like playing Papa and Yo or, or, or heavy, heavy rain or, or, or some of these other kind of narrative based story games. So, yeah, I, I, I think that, um, my intention is not to teach you or to cause you to comply or really even to like intentionally teach uh, empathy at all the hard things that we have to go through. But it's more of just like a, it's kind of, um, I, I hope for a, a personal connection. I hope that it's, it's more like, you know, I've written before, like inviting you into this garden that I've made or this garden that I'm living in and just talking to you and sharing my heart, you know, um, within the context of something that's a really heavy subject. So there's no really, you know, over scientific or sociopolitical intent behind what we're doing. Um, and I think that makes us rather unique. So who would you say you were making this game for then? I think that changes as we go along. Um, I think you know originally it's it's just. <sighs> I think the people that are going to relate the most, honestly, is parents. Um, and I think everybody can relate to um, those things that cause us to fear. I think as a parent, one of your biggest fears is losing your children. You know, and uh, we spend a lot of time thinking that we can protect them. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, I think, I think through this, it's kind of addressing that fear and, and then asking then what, um, so I think that those are the ones that are going to relate the most to what we're exploring, but I think everybody, I think everybody can relate to it because I mean, we're, we're, tackling that problem of the pain of innocence, you know, and, um, and it's a, it's a question I don't have all the answers for. Um, but I think it's worth addressing and worth working through. Um, and it's something that, you know, that we've, uh, been forced to do, but I think in the middle of it, we've seen a lot of grace. Um, and we've seen, showed a lot of pain, but we've also seen um, joy in the midst of our our suffering. And I think that's important to share. You've written that one of the things you don't want to show in the game is the suffering of children. You don't want anybody to come away 
hurt by having played this game, but it is nonetheless a very difficult subject, and when I played the game last night, uh, it was very difficult, and I responded to it very strongly, and I had trouble sleeping last night. Mm. So, what do you mean when you say you don't want to hurt people? I mean, obviously you don't, but mm. this is a difficult subject. It is kind of a tough balance because, um, like, on the one hand, you want to be honest and authentic, but on the other hand, like, there was still a lot of joy, and we want to show who Joel was. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a fine line to walk, I feel like. I think I think it goes with artist intent, hopefully, is that my uh, my intent is not to like punch you in the stomach and then drag you through the mud and then you know leave you there. Um, I think that you know if we've if we've experienced pain, then you know, we're not the only ones that experience pain. And the more I learn and the more stories I hear of other people's stories of chronic illness, we, um, we in proportion, didn't suffer the same way that other people suffered. And Joel didn't suffer the same way that other people suffered. Um, and so I think in society, it's hard to talk about these things because they do hurt and they do judge up that fear and they do judge up that dread and um, they, they do all of that stuff. And so we don't like to talk about it. Um, but it's something that almost everybody that you would talk to would have a story about those moments that they experienced that level of pain. And uh, so I don't think it's something that we should ignore or deny. Um, and so, you know, if it's a matter of like, yeah, like I've shared in that pain too. Let's weep together. I think that that's a good thing. Um, I think that that feeling and processing hard things is good. If somebody doesn't want to go there, I don't. I don't really want to force them. <laughs> and so it always remains, you know, an invitation. But I think within within the game design, it's hard because you know. You one thing you didn't play was the the one the scene that Jen Frank played, which is the more the dehydration scene, and it involves um, hearing cries of a child that you can't stop. And um, for that, I think I take for granted that having gone through it, that puts us in a different place than those people that have not gone through it. And so, it's this like Josh was saying, this balance of like like um, it doesn't hit me the same way it would hit somebody else because I've gone through it. And, um, and so like that scene represents six hours of my life where I was, where Joel was in a lot of pain and I was at the end of myself. And, um, and so I'm asking the players to sit with me through 10 minutes of that. And that's a big ask. And I, and I acknowledge that. And I'm very like, it's very sobering. And it was especially sobering the first time anybody played the, the scene because I was like, yeah. Oh no, like, holy cow, I, I just like ripped their heart out and I didn't, I didn't realize I had that power, you know? And so at that point, it's just like, okay, I'm holding your heart. What do I do with it? You know? And it's like my intent as an artist is not to just, to just squeeze tighter. My, my intent as an artist is, is, to, is to say, okay, I've shared in this pain and you've shared in this kind of pain. So therefore what, you know, what comfort do we have? What comfort have we received? And let's, Let's work through that as well. So, um, so that's what I mean by not really wanting to hurt people. And and you know, in the scene of dehydration, I have no interest in showing Joel's avatar. Um, hearing it is plenty, and even hearing it for some people is too much. Um, and so, there are places where um, I I don't want to show the distress because I don't think it's necessary. Um, and I think it would be a little obscene. And I think within a team, we all have different lines on where that is. And so yeah. that's the thing that we wrestle with um, is where to push and where to pull punches, you know, um, in, in the design process. 
Josh, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think our one of our intentions is to try and communicate um, the hope and the joy of the Green family. And so um, it's kind of easy to look at some of the content in the game and to assume like the entire game is going to be super depressing. Um, but that's only part of the story. So I guess we're just kind of hoping that people will trust us that when they play the full game, it'll be a journey that um, while it's emotionally difficult, um, ultimately it feels like you're better for having played it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think one other thing for us is that at the beginning of the game, I've noticed that people have different reactions to it. You're in a park and you're playing with Joel and a lot of people that know this story find a, a lot of sadness in it. And my hope is that, you know, that they realize that sadness is not a unique, distinct feeling. That sadness is also mixed with, joy and happiness and laughter and all those different things and it's part of the complexity of of the human experience and so um i think that when you mix joy and hope with sadness that it creates um something much richer and and worth exploring and worth sitting in a little bit because i think it represents what gives our lives meaning um is is how we go through pain and how we respond to it and how we memorialize and remember the people that changed our lives and the way that we look at the world. I think I played two scenes last night. Sounds like Jen Frank played another, and I understand there are five total. Is that all correct? In the final game, there will be about 12. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And are all those scenes based on specific episodes or incidences in your life? They're all inspired by real things. Um, a lot of times, you know, a lot of times we use symbolism to represent different things. And um, other times we'll use like, like say a home video, footage from a home video and take that situation and put it into more of a fantastical setting and then just and kind of and add to it from there. Um, and so there are places where uh, it's, the the movement and the attitude and and the voice and the uh, intent is all there, but it's set in a more fantastical setting. So I would say it's not direct autobiography. It's not a direct memoir or a documentary, but it certainly has all those elements in it um, as we go through the experience. And so you'll you know experience what it is to be with Joel and what it is to go through treatment with him. Um, in more of a symbolic way because, you know, 40 years of treatment is brutal and, and um, there's so many ups and downs and so many roller coasters that you really have to focus in on, on what it is that's important um, and, and what you can draw from that experience. And so some, some experiences are composite from a lot of different experiences all combined into one scene. Um, and so what we've tried to do is mixed, mixed dramatic prose and poetry with um, with kind of reenactment, with home video, audio, with and, and kind of mix it all into something that creates a, a hopefully a narrative that uh, a narrative arc that people can walk through. So it took me about twenty minutes to play those two scenes. That's about ten minutes per scene. Uh, if mm-hmm. I wanted to do a speed run, I probably could have done it faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, with twelve scenes, I'm guessing the game takes about two hours to play through. That's our goal. Okay. So you're compressing four years into two hours. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a uh, what I was most struck by, well maybe not most, but one of the things I was struck by was how poetic the game is, especially in its visual representation. It's very abstract at times where I'm playing the first person perspective and I glance away at something and when I come back there is someone or something there that wasn't there before or things have changed or they they change slowly so I can see them changing and suddenly I I was in a doctor's office and now I'm in a raging sea storm. Looking at some of the early art from uh, early press you received on this game, it looks like the game has actually gotten more abstract where the character models are less defined and more vague. Why the decision to move in that direction? 
I think one thing that you're seeing is my growing as an artist. I've always been interested in doing visual art and only had limited opportunity to do it. And so this was the first time I took the opportunity to jump fully in. And so the the book, uh, the He's Not Dead Yet, was my first foray, heavy foray into 3D. And so what you see there and in some of the early concepts is me trying to learn how to make faces and how to do things correctly and, um, and learning how to model and learning how to render and all this stuff. And um, Josh told me once that I was very brave for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, which means, you know, you're not there yet, Ryan, but good job. Good effort. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's the thing is recognizing my limitations um, as, uh, as an artist and wanting to do something that's effective and not distracting. And some of the early models of Joel are very distracting. And some of the early models of me are very distracting because they can't approach the fidelity that's necessary to express such subtlety in emotion. Um, and it's that, it's that classic problem of, of, um, the uncanny Valley. Uh, I don't want to attempt to cross it because I have no ability to do that. And so, a lot of times um, it's about finding the art style that best expresses what it is that you want to convey. And we found that no faces was actually still very effective in, in conveying emotion, surprisingly. And I think it's because we have such a good audio guy. Um, John, our composer and um, audio mixer and sound design pro um, and programmer, um, he implements a lot of the soundscapes and, and uh, and has a studio um, in his house and and allows us to kind of take the audio production to the next level. And so I feel like in that we can we can go more abstract in our visual representation and still be able to convey the emotion effectively, which is what's important about what we're doing is that it is so raw, it is so personal that I would rather the player not get distracted by the plastic face of a video game avatar. Um, so we found that people that, you know, like when you're, when you're watching it, when you're interacting with it, like at least for us, we assign emotions to it and um, it doesn't really make a difference that we don't have a facial expression system. In Scott McCloud's book, understanding comics, he suggests that, the less defined a character model is, the more it serves as a template for the consumer to impress himself into the story and allow them to be mm -hmm. more interactive. So that might be why people, when they play Pac-Man, they say, I'm going through a maze instead of Pac-Man is going through a maze. I think where I differ a little bit um, theologically in video game design is that I don't think that we make our characters empty templates. I think we need to give our characters strong characterizations and strong voices. And so while I think you can assign yourself um, physically, I, I do believe that having a stronger point of view in your characters helps people connect to it more um, than leaving it blank. So well, that's just kind of like the idea that, um, that the character is still its own um, person but it's something that you relate to and empathize with as another person instead of as you. Ryan, you mentioned that was a theological difference that you have, and faith is <laughs> certainly very important to you. How does that manifest itself in the game, or where or how would players see that in the game? You know, faith and, and spirituality is something that I, I can't separate from my daily life. You know, it's part of me. And it's not something that uh, I don't see a division of secular and spiritual. Um, it's just all, all spiritual. <laughs> so um, to me, removing that from the game, um, I think would do a disservice to the story that we've gone through and how faith has played a role in our fight with Joel um, and in the experience of, you know, where is our hope and, and um, how do we deal with these hard things? And so I think the, the differences from probably most, you know, Christian media that you might run into is that our intent is not um, a Sunday school lesson. It's, um, 
it's an expression of our story and how we see things and what we struggle with. I would say it's more has has more in common with the Psalms um, than anything else because some of it's lament, you know, and um, and it's wondering, you know, where God is and and um, and uh, and struggling through those problems of pain and suffering and and uh, and hope and um, eternity and just all that stuff. And so when you go through something like this, it, it, it changes you and it causes you to really like look at yourself and look at what you believe. And, and that, um, that walk is something that I want to express. And, and also the reason that we wanted to start this project in the middle of our, our battle, um, you know, obviously our hope was that we would see a miracle and that we'd be able to talk about that. And now we are talking about what it is to live in the aftermath of losing your child. And, um, and so I think that there's value in expressing, uh, expressing all of that in the middle of the journey. Because afterwards, a lot of times people like take their experience and they package it up into a neat package. And then they say, here, here's how you replicate it. And I just don't, I don't believe that as much as I used to, uh, and I think that the that the spiritual journey is is very personal and um, it's unique for everybody because I believe that our spiritual journey is about finding connection and relationship with um, with uh, with God. So so hopefully this expresses that um, in a way that I think anybody spiritual or a spiritual can can relate to. Um, you know, I, we had once a, a, a journalist that was um, proclaimed atheist and, and said that even he could understand why you would pray in that moment. And I think that those simple human connections are, are important to serve as like a way that we can, can talk about how we're alike and similar and how we can relate to each other uh, rather than um, how we're different. So. Yeah, I think um, ultimately... Uh, the game is kind of sharing the journey that they've been on and and part of that just includes like um, a testimony of what's happened and and what they have gone through and that includes you know like how you consider God and all of that and if you were to read um, Joel's blog where Amy has like 900 posts or whatever um, you know you can tell that Faith is simply just like part of how you see the world if you're a religious person or a spiritual person. And so um, it makes sense to me that that would be in the game because um, otherwise the game is like has a big hole in it <laughs> if it's not there. It's just not very authentic. So I think that's a, a big intention um, that the whole team has is to try and make this an authentic experience. So. No, I can appreciate that. I've met people who have lost faith and they sometimes describe it as having a hole. And so having a game without that, I can see how that would be similar. Yeah. This game has been in development for years and it is currently on Kickstarter. I was actually a little surprised when it went on Kickstarter because I've been hearing about the game for so long. I assumed it was done and I just missed it <laughs> but it actually still is in development it's coming out mid 2015 uh, so after so many years of development what prompted you to go to Kickstarter we started the game actually roughly two years from now I think it was like early November 2012 uh, when we started um, so it's been just over two years we started working on it self-funded and it was, I think, maybe five, five months or something like that by the time we had like an actual video game-like demo. And we started sharing it with people at the Game Developers Conference in 2013. And um, that's where we met uh, several like, you know, game industry people, started sharing it with them and kind of kept in touch. And then eventually, um, we announced that uh, we would be partnering with Ouya, and um, we got significant funding from them. 
Uh, and it was, it was really an amazing thing because we could tell that they were great people to work with. And, um, you know, one of the reasons they told us that they wanted to support us was because it felt like the right thing to do. And that is an amazing thing to hear from, you know, uh, somebody in the industry, um, that's wants to support you in that way instead of, you know, just thinking about the money or whatever. So that was amazing. And so our intention was to continue development and, um, and release it. But like we mentioned on the Kickstarter page, um, the story was continuing to evolve and change and the game kind of evolved with that. Um, and so now the game is kind of bigger than, um, the original vision and kind of better matches the, the story of their journey as it is now. And so, um, that basically meant that we needed another portion of funding to continue development. And part of that goes to just finishing out the last few scenes that we have. Um, I think there's like three, two or three scenes or something like that, that we still have to build. And then the rest of it is just polishing it, um, to the level that we feel like is appropriate for the vision that we have. And we really debated for a long time which direction to go in. And a lot of people suggested Kickstarter. Obviously, we thought about that. And the more we thought about it, um, the better idea it seemed like. There were a lot of people that just wanted this project to exist. And that's part of Kickstarter's culture. And, um, and it's also just a way for us to include other people's stories in the game and kind of give them a platform and a voice so that, um, the game can be, uh, richer as a result and just, you know, better represent that the green family is part of a larger community who've all dealt with this. Yeah. And I think for us, like independence was a pretty big, um, core, uh, uh, core value of ours in this project. And, and really as collaborators is that, you know, our hope is to tell personal stories from a distinct voice, um, in the things that we make. And so we had been able to come this far with the help of Uya on remaining independent and having that independent voice and in Kickstarter gives us the opportunity to continue that. So, so that's another reason why we pursued Kickstarter is, is for that. And, and then also because once we, once we landed on that, we realized, oh, this is a way that we can share a platform um, that we've been given with other people. And so, um, uh, you know, along with helping us getting this project made, we're also asking for people to contribute their voice to what we're doing. Um, and we had a little taste of that last year at PAX when um, we invited people to send us uh, art of the day that they faced that dragon. And uh, we printed it out. And when people would donate to Extra Life or through Children's Miracle Network through Extra Life, then we'd give them a, a poster print of, uh, with an artist statement of you know, what was represented in that, in that photo. And what I loved is just the, just the diversity of voices of, um, uh, and, and interpretations of that dragon uh, that we got. And so um, I kind of want to continue that, that process into the game um, where you see a variety of voices represented because cancer is something and, and death in general um, and that whole struggle for life is something that we all share. Um, and so it seemed, it seemed appropriate. And the Kickstarter seems to have been well-received. At the time of this recording, you're about 89% funded. You've re achieved $71,000 of your $85,000 goal, so it looks like you'll be meeting your goal. Obviously, the response has been spectacular, but is, are there any particular responses that have surprised you? Did you think that it would generate this level of support, or have people come out with any particular stories about why they're supporting you? Yeah, uh, we were, we've been overwhelmed and, and very grateful. I think the thing that surprised me the most is, is other families that have gone through similar situations of lost children that want to add their voice to what we're doing um, and feel like it represents them in a way. Um, and that's been really special. And even, 
you know, we had somebody commission us to do a piece for them um, based on a photo, and they sent us the photo, and uh, it was like a, just like a personal moment uh, with them and, and a child that they had lost, and, and it just struck me in a new way, like uh, the, the, the heaviness of what it is that we're doing and what it represents. You know, I think it, when you're in the middle of it, you kind of, being in the middle of it, you just get through it. And you have a tendency to just do what you need to do to get through it. And sometimes pausing and looking at other people's pain, um, it just strikes you in a whole new and a raw way. And I just had that moment in this Kickstarter where it was like, wow, like, this is this is real. And this is, this is not just, a, a, you know, it's not just our story and our loss that represents so much more. And so to me, it was just even more of a, it's, it's not, Oh, it's not a heavy weight, but it's a weight of just like, um, significance. <laughs> yeah. 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 That I didn't anticipate. Um, and you, you know, those moments kind of reset you, um, when you're kind of on your mission to like, to express something, you know? So, no, this is a game that is very much resonating with a lot of people for a lot of reasons, and I'm sure you've seen some of that yeah. at events like GDC and PAX, and now even more so on Kickstarter. I understand you also procured funding from the Indie Fund, and if I understand correctly, that is more of a loan that you need to repay. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. So this game will be sold on Steam and Ouya for what, like about $15? Yeah, 15 will be our target. And, you know, as you pointed out, this is, we are taking half of our budget to finish the game is a loan. Um, and so, you know, our hope is to honor those people that have loaned us that money and, and pay them back. And, um, and also, you know, just, this doesn't just represent our investment. This represents the investment and sacrifice of a lot of people. Um, and so, you know, um, we want to be able to, to honor that. And, you know, for us, we really believe in the medium and, and for Josh and I, we would love to be able to work in this space for as long as possible. Um, you know, uh, our goal is to continue to create and to continue to make games. And so, um, so yeah, that it's, this isn't a, this isn't a one-off thing for us. Um, the one thing that we found in the indie community is that, is that people invest and reinvest into the indie community. And we see that through the indie front. I mean, their whole reason to be is to, to make indie developers financially independent. Um, and we think that's really important, especially for all of us. I mean, most of the people on our team have children and, um, and families. And, and so, you know, this is, uh, this is our occupation. So yeah, for all those reasons, you know, that's, uh, why we've pursued it the way that we pursued it and why we're, we'll um, be selling it once we launch. And I understand that there is also not just the game coming out next year, but also hopefully a documentary called Thank You for Playing. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Did these filmmakers just approach you out of the blue? Yeah, uh, David Osset, um, he approached us last year, uh, July, no, it was July of last year, and, um, and saw a one-line mention of us in Kill Screen Daily. And uh, was really interested in talking to us, and so we met with them, and uh, we liked what they had to say, and they came out and spent a week with our family, and and um, started that process. So, um, yeah, it was just it was it's a documentary that's completely independent of us, um, and produced by David and Malika, and uh, and so yeah, it will be interesting to see. Um, I look forward to seeing it as well because I don't know what it's going to be like. <laughs> yeah. It documents the last nine months of Joel's life and, and um, the process of our team making and showing the game and uh, what that experience was like. So, Yeah, it's, um, oh, it's been really interesting to see them get more involved in this story and what kind of perspective they have. And I don't think... Well, I guess, um, yeah, I don't think anybody on the team has really, like, seen any part of the film. So 
we are all in the dark and have no idea like the exact story that they're going to tell. But, you know, it just, I don't know. It seems like they're very talented and, and know how to tell a good story. Yeah. So It's very interesting because there, to a small degree, is a quality of documentary to the game you are making. It details an experience that you've had, and now this is a documentary about a documentary. <laughs> the meta nature of it is not lost on anybody. <laughs> I think if you go any deeper, time will slow down. <laughs> now, if so- now if somebody were to come to me and want to make a film, I would want to see what they had done before as a testament to their ability to convey that story. Mm-hmm. It looks like the two artists working on this project, thank you for playing, have worked on a previous documentary, or at least Malika has, uh, called Call Me Kuchu. So I assume that you probably have some experience with that film uh, through your relationship with these filmmakers. What was it about their ability to tell a story that you saw in that film that made you think this is going to be a good pairing for our story as well? Mm -hmm. Um. Actually, we didn't see their films right away. Um, most of our interaction with them was just talking to them and meeting them and, and feeling comfortable with that and maybe seeing like a teaser trailer for David's uh, film that came out last year called Building Babel. Um, and that was about uh, the building of the Ground Zero Mosque. And so I think what we saw in both filmmakers was that, um, was that they let the subjects kind of speak for themselves. And um, we like the way that they make, you know, and, you know, having seen the films now and I'm just struck by, they just, uh, I, I like the way that they make documentary films. Um, they, they let the subjects tell their own story and that was important to us. Um, there's not, there's not really, uh, an agenda in their filmmaking. Uh, they kind of, they let you kind of make your own bed and in a certain way that's kind of terrifying because <laughs> um because you know while you are the subject of the documentary you always have your guard up but you don't always have your guard up and um and so i think that's what's special about documentary filmmaking is that it shows people for who they are and um and i think that not everybody I'm, I'm dealing with the fact that maybe not everybody will like who I am. I hope they do. Um, <laughs> or they might think, you know, at, at, at best ill-informed or, you know, at worst delusional. But um, I think what's important is that we be willing to share our hearts with each other. And I think the way that you start that is by sharing your heart first. And so when you do that, you kind of start that conversation. And that's what we found in the game, too, is that mm-hmm. by sharing my heart first, um, people want to share their heart with us. And, uh, and I think that's evidenced by the support of the Kickstarter that people, um, they believe in what we're doing and, you know, um, that we're supported by just a wide variety of people in the indie game space. Um, and in the, in, in, in the, in the industry as large. And we really value that. Um, we value being part of that and we value, uh, having a seat at the table in the, in the game's culture. Um, so it's very precious to us. Well, I think the community really values what you do. And it's very brave of you what you've done. One of my heroes has always been Christopher Reeve because when he suffered his tragedy, some celebrities may have just gone into hiding or become recluses and dealt with their pain and their tragedy very privately. Mm. but instead he took it as an opportunity to become an advocate and speak for so many who were not being heard. Your decision to take this tragedy and share it in a way that other people can empathize with and experience and learn from, I think that's something that really resonates, and I really admire you for doing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, people who want to try this game who have not yet been to one of your events or one of your demos, where can they do that? Will you be at other events coming up in 2015? Yes. Uh, many of those events kind of depend on if we get into this, in through the submission process. Um, and so in certain cases, we just have to wait until we get the thumbs up or thumbs down um, uh, from the festival. But uh, some of the ones that we are 
hoping to be at. Uh, we're hoping to be at PAX East and South by Southwest, um, PAX Prime, and Games for Change uh, as part of Tribeca. So those are ones that we're hoping to be at. Um, so we'll see. Uh, as far as um, being able to play the game, the only thing we're really offering to the public right now is through the Kickstarter. We do have a tier for playing the original demo scene, um, kind of remastered for what it will look like in the final game. Um, and we're, uh, and that's one way that people can play it. But otherwise, we're, we're keeping kind of a tight lid on it, um, hoping to you know, kind of surprise people a little bit with... Um, with what it's like. I think people get an impression based on the way that people have written about it. I've, I've seen some people write that most of the game takes place in an ICU, and in fact, none of the game takes place in an ICU. So um, I think that there's some, I think there's some perspectives on how we're going to t- tell a story and some assumptions about where we're going that um, I hope to surprise people with, because like we said, you know, our game is not, ab- is not about cancer. It has cancer in it. It's about it's about Joel, <laughs> and it's about our family, um, and kind of all the, all the ups and downs and the roller coaster of going through this experience. So we have some really fantastical moments and some really playful moments and some funny moments and some sad moments, and um, it's all mixed together. So, so yeah, all that to say, not yet, but hopefully soon. <laughs> And you said that this is not a one-off for you. This is your profession. When this game is done, then what? Not not just for you as a career, but just for this story. What happens next? Yeah, obviously we want to um, share this game with as many people as possible. Um, so we'll probably be working on it for a while, uh, even after our initial release. Um, so... Yeah, we'll definitely be doing that, um, and hopefully, we still have a couple surprises that we can so that we can uh, share with people even after our initial release. Another thing is when we went to GDC and shared our demo, we had a vision for the game that was kind of half um, real life story of the Greens and half this fantasy allegorical world and a lot of our early concepts on our uh, that dragon cancer website had that other part of the game in it and we essentially scrapped that entire half of the game uh, based on feedback that we got from designers and game industry people because they didn't fully understand it um, at that point since we hadn't fleshed out the vision as much and we would love to work on that half of the game Mm. Uh, which is kind of more of a universal story rather than just one family. So um, we would like to do that. We, you know, we're not. We, obviously, we can't commit to that 100 percent right now. But um, we would definitely like to explore the world of Tellel and um, and a community of people struggling and trying to find hope in the midst of of um, that struggle. Yeah. Yeah, I think if I were to describe it, it'd be, you know, what would happen if a, a remote town was inundated with refugees? And um, because because that town had something, had healing power inside of its walls. And how would the people react to that, to, to all the new people that needed help and needed love and needed healing and um, were refugees from wherever they came from. Um, so I feel like that there's, whereas our story right now is about a personal story about one family, um, it would, uh, this, this next story would be how do we treat each other as a community um, and how do, we, how do we gather around each other to like bear each other's burdens rather than just our own. Um, and so those are the themes that we're really interested in exploring. If people want to follow any potential future progress you have on that idea or others, where can they follow you or sign up for emails? Right now, just through that dragoncancer.com. Um, uh, we are still, you know, the ideas around our studio are still kind of being formed. 
Um, and so we're not ready to announce that yet, but, um, but yeah, certainly through that dragoncancer.com and, uh, and our Twitter, uh, Ryan Green 8 and, and got it play. And then we have also a Facebook page for that dragon cancer. So, um, so they can follow us. Very good. Well, I, I, as I've said, I appreciate everything you've done for the community and through this project, and I certainly appreciate the time you've given to me today for the Polygamer podcast. I look forward to seeing the Kickstarter succeed and to seeing the game come out in 2015. Thank you very much. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Ryan. Yep. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. After so many years of development, what prompted you to go to Kickstarter? Josh, why don't you take that because there's a train here. <laughs>